Well, good morning and welcome to North Boulevard Church this morning. Uh, For those of you here at East Campus, it's really good to see all of you guys. I assume you're smiling behind your masks. And to all of you joining us uh, online, whatever campus you may be at, uh, wherever you may be joining us from, really glad that you've decided to worship with us this morning. My name is Justin Sims. I'm one of the ministers here at North Boulevard, and I've been a part of North Boulevard for a while, but it's been somewhat on and off. Uh, Back in 2012, I came when I was in college to be a summer intern with David Skidmore and the the youth group. Then in 2014, when I completed college, I came back and was a preaching and church planting intern with David Young and with Glenn Robb when the West Campus started. In 2017, I was sent as a missionary apprentice by North Boulevard to Buenos Aires, Argentina, where I lived for two years. And after all of that time, North Boulevard finally decided that I could graduate from being an intern. So when I came back from Argentina, uh, I became one of the ministers at the Smyrna Laverne campus. Uh, So glad to be with you guys this morning. Thank you. It's very kind of you. Uh, So I love being a part of North Boulevard, being a part of this family, and really glad to bring you the message this morning. So I still remember when it was that I heard this song that so perfectly described in very vivid terms just how far a person would be willing to go for the person that they love. It was a song written by relationship expert and pop artist Bruno Mars. When Bruno Mars sang this song, and don't worry, I will not be singing for you this morning. I'm going to leave the singing to David. Bruno Mars sings this song. He sings... Girl, I'd catch a grenade for you. I'd put my hand on a blade for you. I'd jump in front of a train for you. You know, I'd do anything for you. I would go through all this pain, take a bullet straight through my brain. Yes, I would die for you, baby, but you won't do the same. Now, a couple of things about this song. Uh, First off, if you're in a relationship in which it might be necessary for you to catch a grenade for the sake of the person you're dating, she may not be the girl for you. I'm just saying, you may want to explore some other options because she might be working for the CIA. But secondly, uh, what Bruno Mars gets at in his song is something that I think we all know to be true. And that is when you love someone, when you truly and deeply love someone, you would be willing to give everything to get them back. We come to the point in our sermon series this morning, we've been looking at the story of God and how the story of God has become our story. And today we come to the climax of that story. We come to the foot of the cross. We come to the triumphant crescendo in the love song that God has been singing over humanity because On the cross, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, what happens on the cross is of first importance for you and me. It is the foundation of our faith, for without the cross, there is no Christian story. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that's the story that we want to look at this morning. So if you've been with us and and you've been listening to the sermon series, you know that David and and really our church has been experiencing this sermon series looking at the story of Scripture from one tree to another, right? That God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And when he created it, he created humanity as the pinnacle of that creation. And once he created humans, then he put us in a garden represented by the tree of life. 
that you and I were created, as David has told us, for utopia, for a perfect world in which we exist in a perfect relationship with God. We exist in harmony with one another. We have peace within ourselves and we enjoy the good things of God's creation. But we've also seen that as part of this story, you and I decided we wanted God's utopia, but we wanted it without God. That we wanted to be in charge of the world that God told us we were just going to be stewards of. That we, in fact, wanted to be the gods of our own lives. And so Adam and Eve and every human being since them has decided that we wanted to do things our own way. That we wanted to become the kings of our own life. And ever since that decision, what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when they rebelled against their creator in the garden, is that we broke the good creation that God had made for us. That we threw away the utopia that he created us for. And so now all of us can look around and say, we live in a broken world. And it is broken because we broke it. We were not created to live in a broken world. And so ever since this first tree, ever since God Ever since we threw away the utopia that God gave us, God has been relentlessly working to restore the utopia that you and I lost. God has been relentlessly working to restore everything that we once had with God in the garden. And now on the cross, Christ gives it to us back. Christ gives us back the things that we lost. And so to say it this way, the message of the sermon this morning is that everything Adam lost Christ restores on the cross. Everything you and I lost, our intimacy with God. We used to walk with God in the cool of the garden. Everything you and I lost, the harmony that existed between one another, there was no divorce. There was no tension between friends. There was no racism. Everything that you and I lost that we had in the garden, the peace that existed within ourselves, there was no anxiety. There was no shame or guilt. There were no addictions. Everything Adam lost, Christ restores on the cross. The way we come to this message is Paul tells us as much in Romans chapter 5. See, in Romans chapter 5, Paul is going to make a comparison, a parallel comparison between Adam, who represents humanity, and Christ, who also represents humanity, and yet Christ is, of course, divine. And so Paul is going to tell us in Romans chapter 5 that everything Adam lost, Christ restores on the cross. And he says it this way. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all men sinned. That from Adam's one sin, the creation was broken and all of us have since inherited the death that Adam brought to the world. That all of us have since inherited a proclivity, an inclination, an irresistible inclination towards sin. That every single one of us have participated in Adam's rebellion. And we live in a world of darkness and death and brokenness because of one man's sin and our participation in that sin. But the the story doesn't end there. Because later Paul tells us, he takes a little bit of a deviation in his thought and he returns to this central truth. That consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, the obedient death of Christ on the cross, 
So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. In other words, everything that Adam lost, everything that you and I lost, Christ restores on the cross. So I want us to see this morning four things that you and I had that we lost because of our sin and that now Christ restores by his grace. Four things. First, this will move. First is that Christ restores on the cross our human vocation. That in the beginning, when God created humanity, God did not merely create human beings, place them in a perfect place, and then say, all right, you're free to do whatever you want. But rather, in the beginning, God created human beings and he gave us life for a very specific purpose. If you remember, one of the very first things we read is that God commands humanity, be fruitful and multiply, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. That was not a suggestion. It was a divine command. Furthermore, God created us to be divine image bearers. We were supposed to reflect the character and the creativity of our God as we spread throughout the world. And then finally, God created us not to be his slaves, but to be his stewards, to be caretakers of the good things that God had created for us. And so you and I were created to be the stewards of our bodies. We were created to be the stewards of the created world. We were created to be the managers of our businesses. We were created to build cities and become the leaders in our cities. We were created to be the good caretakers of everything that God had given us. And the reason why we have to remember that Jesus Christ does not just die to change where we go when we die, but Jesus, in fact, comes to die in order to restore our human vocation is that many of us have believed a truncated story about the cross. That many of us have asked this question when we come to the foot of the cross. And we ask, doesn't Jesus die just so that I can go to heaven? Isn't the reason why Jesus comes to the earth and dies for humanity is so that we can go to heaven when we die? Uh, isn't the cross, to put it in other terms, like a cosmic get out of hell free card? How many of you have played Monopoly before? Anybody enjoy playing Monopoly, right? Uh, so if you've ever played Monopoly, you know that to play a game of Monopoly takes between three hours and six months to complete a full game. It takes forever. So when my siblings and I would play Monopoly growing up, we didn't have that much time. And so we would begin a game of Monopoly. We would come to a starting point, a stopping point, And then we would all each collect up our money, our properties, our special cards that we had acquired, and we would hide them throughout the house. So that n none of our siblings, right, would swap properties or steal cash or, or take any valuable cards. Clearly, I come from a very trusting family. And then we would return to play the game later. Well, one of the more prized cards in Monopoly is the get out of jail free card, right? Because the get out of jail free card enables you to play the game worry free. You can land wherever you want. You can roll doubles as many times as you want. And as long as you have that get out of jail free card, as soon as you're about to bear the consequences of your actions, you play the card and you go free. And I think that many of us, though we may not articulate it this way, we have come to believe a false narrative about the cross, a false narrative about the gospel. And it's not false because it's blatantly untrue. It's false because it's such a, such a shortened story that it ceases to serve us well. 
that Jesus only dies to change our final location. That when we believe in Jesus and are baptized, we receive a cosmic get out of hell free card. And then what we do is we say, all right, I'm going to play the game however I want from now on. And as long as I don't lose my card, whatever your theological tradition determines that that means, as long as I don't lose my card, I pay my tithe, I show up to church, I, I, I do whatever it takes, I don't do the really bad sins, as long as I don't lose my card, then I'm good. Because when I get before God on the day of judgment, I can pull my get out of hell free card out. I play it and I get to live my life worry free. Jesus did not merely die so that we could go to a perfect place when we die. Though that's true, and we need to affirm that, right? The grace of Jesus does allow us to go to a perfect place when we die, but that is only part of the story. That Jesus does not just die so that we can go to a perfect place. Jesus dies so that we can become perfect people. Jesus dies not to change our final destination so much as he does. He comes to restore our human vocation. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, explains on numerous occasions just how much he has to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Paul's waking up in the morning and he's practicing his trade. He's going to work. Uh, he's making tents. And then in the evenings, he's debating with people in the synagogues. He's making disciples. He's writing letters. He, he's praying for the churches. Paul is not playing the game of life however he wants, willy-nilly, knowing that he has a get-out-of-hell-free card in his pocket. Paul, rather, is giving everything that he has because he knows that Jesus Christ died to change, to, to change him to transform him. And so he says this in 2 Corinthians 5, that Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he goes on to say, and he died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for he who died for them and was raised again. Jesus died not so that we can live however we want, Jesus died so that we can live our lives exactly how he wants us to live. And in that is true freedom. We might ask Paul, so how does that work, right? How does Christ restore our human vocation? What does that even mean? He goes on to tell us a couple verses later that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us, to bear our sin on the cross, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. To put it in other terms, in the death of Christ, we have gone from being slaves to once again being stewards. We've gone from being slaves to our sin to once again being stewards of God's good creation. He didn't use the words, be fruitful and multiply, but what did Jesus tell his disciples in the Great Commission? He said, go and make disciples of all nations, right? Be fruitful and multiply, right? Retake the creation that we have lost. We are now God's appointed stewards of creation. It is us who have been redeemed by Jesus. We are the ones who should be leading our cities. We are the ones who should be leading and managing our businesses. We are the ones who should be leading the family. We are the ones who are, who are supposed to be the good stewards of God. God's creation because God has redeemed us from slavery and he has made us again his stewards. We were not created just to go to a perfect place when we die. We were created to become perfect people. And in Christ, that has already happened. 
and he will bring it to completion. Second, not only does Christ die to restore our human vocation, but Christ dies to restore our peace with God. You see, in the beginning, you and I enjoyed perfect peace with God. We had no sin to separate us from God. We had no shame between us and God. We had not yet disobeyed him. And because of that, we lived in perfect harmony with our creator. But when we sinned, a couple of things happened. And when you and I sin, a couple of things continue to happen. First is that when you and I sin, we become enemies of God. We don't become God's enemies because God turns his back on us. We become God's enemies because we turn our backs on God. Because we tell God, we don't want you ruling over our lives. And so Paul tells us in Colossians 1, that once you were separated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And so we broke the perfect peace that we enjoyed with God when we sinned. Another thing that happens when you and I sin is that we incur a debt with God that we simply cannot repay, right? God gives us life. None of us can manufacture life on our own, right? We know that. None of us can will the fact that we have breath in our lungs right now. None of us can. It is simply a gift. And just as if you were to give your money to someone and tell them, I want you to invest this money wisely. If you were to give your money to someone, say, I want you to do this with my money. If that person squanders your money and spends it however they want, you would expect repayment, right? It's not right. I gave you this money for a specific purpose. In the same way, God does not give us life and then tell us to spend it however we want. God gives us life, he gives us breath, and then he tells us, I want you to spend it exactly how I want for you to spend it. And so we incur a debt with God because we have taken the resources that he has given us and we have used it for our own purposes and our own desires. And we have incurred a debt with God that we simply cannot repay. Thirdly, when we sin, our sin deserves punishment. God is not only our good creator, but God is also the judge of the universe. And as judge, God must punish sin. No one wants to live in a world in which the wicked run free. God, in his justice, must punish sin. And yet what happens on the cross, remarkably, is that not only does someone pay our debt, not only does someone sacrifice themselves to reconcile us to God, but God himself, who is the judge, bears the punishment for our sins so that we can be free. And the reason why this is such an important point to emphasize is because there is a false narrative out there today, even espoused by Christian people, who would tell us that it wasn't necessary for Jesus to die for us to be forgiven. And the way that we kind of go down this line is we begin with a simple question. And the question itself is fine. It's a good question. It's one that I've asked before. Does Jesus have to die for God to forgive us? If God wanted to, couldn't God simply wave his hands over the world and pronounce that we're all forgiven, right? Couldn't he wave a magical wand or, or say a word or snap his fingers? Why does it seem like, some people would say, we're living in the midst of a cosmic escape game, right? If you've ever played an escape game, you've got to jump through all these hoops and solve all these clues. But at the end of the day, you can really just press a button and get out of the room, right? So these rules aren't necessary, right? We, we could get out of the room some other way. 
is Jesus's death like Jesus submitting to some cosmic escape game that it's really not necessary for him to die? God could actually forgive us another way. In fact, the reason why this is such a false story is because it makes the justice of God seem like pettiness. People would say, doesn't God seem so petty that he demands a blood sacrifice for the sake of forgiving his children? Isn't God old-fashioned, right, for needing justice, for needing payment, for needing punishment in order to forgive us? One person who wrestled with this question was uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi was, of course, the famous Indian lawyer and nonviolent social justice activist, reformer, who helped to bring about uh, the revolution in India from under British rule. And if you read any of Gandhi's writings, you know that he was fascinated by Jesus. Uh, he talks about receiving at one, at one time a, a copy of the Sermon on the Mount, and he determined that the Sermon on the Mount, the truths in that sermon, were on par with anything that he had read in the Hindu religious writings, the Bhagavad Gita and others. He's fascinated by Jesus, but he simply couldn't become a committed follower of Jesus. And one of the things that kept Gandhi from becoming a true follower of Jesus is that he simply couldn't believe that it was necessary for a man to die in order to redeem all of humanity. He tells this story about being invited by some friends, some Christian friends, to a Christian conference. It was down in Wellington, South Africa. And Gandhi writes in his autobiography that he was going to the conference ready to believe. He says, I would listen to the inner voice within me if I truly believed that Jesus was my Savior. I would listen. I would change teams. I would commit myself to Jesus. So he goes to this conference, spends three days there. But at the end, he says, I simply couldn't buy it. I simply couldn't believe that a man had to die in order to redeem humanity. He writes this in his autobiography. He says, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, as an embodiment of sacrifice, and a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. And when Gandhi determined that it was not necessary for Jesus to die to redeem humanity, he also determined it wasn't necessary for him to follow Jesus. That if we don't believe that it was necessary for Jesus to die to rescue humanity, then Jesus just becomes another sad story of a social justice martyr who got killed by the empire. But if in fact it was necessary for Jesus to die in order to redeem humanity, to pay our debt, to bear our punishment, and to reconcile us with God, then as Paul tells us in Romans 3, the cross is not a display of God's pettiness. The cross is a display of his pity. It is, the, it is the display of him doing everything necessary to reconcile us from God, to God. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3. He says, he did this, that is God presented Christ as an atoning sacrifice to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance or in his patience, he had let the sins previously committed unpunished. That is, up until Jesus, God had not fully punished humanity's sins because he knew that he himself would bear that punishment. And so God did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Because he is not only just, the just judge, but he is also the justifier of everyone who believes. We do not want a God who lets wickedness go unpunished. But how much greater is it that we have a God 
who when he punishes wickedness, he bears that punishment himself. And so Christ on the cross takes our punishment and we in turn receive his peace. Thirdly, not only does God in Christ restore our peace with God, but he also restores our intimacy with God. It's one thing for us to have peace with somebody else, right? But it's another thing to have intimacy. It's one thing for a marriage to be at peace, for, for a couple to be at peace with one another, but it's a completely different thing for them to be intimate with one another, right? It's one thing for me to be okay with my relationship with my father, for us to be at peace. It is another thing for us to have an intimate relationship. And if all the cross is, is God dying to reconcile us to himself, to remove the things that kept us separated, then it's simply an act of cosmic diplomacy, right? God reconciling two warring factions. But on the cross, God is not merely interested in creating peace between us. God is interested in restoring the intimacy that we once had with God. That you and I, in the garden, enjoyed perfect intimacy with God. And that's the reason why we find it so unbearable to be separated from him now. I mean, how many of you have wished that you could just sit down with God and talk to him face to face? How many of you just wish that you could see the look on God's face when he talks about you? How many of you just wish that you could sit next to Jesus incarnate and just tell him everything that's going on and ask him, Lord Jesus, what do you want me to do? How many of you wish we long for a deeper intimacy with God? The reason why we have that longings and the reason why we try to fill that longing with so much garbage is because we once had perfect intimacy with God, but we lost it. We threw it away. Christ on the cross restores it. And the reason why it's important for us to emphasize this part of the story is because many of us have believed a false story about the cross. Many of us have believed that the cross is more about God's anger than it is about God's love. And so someone may ask you, or maybe you've even asked this yourself, doesn't God kill his son to not be angry with us anymore? Isn't the story of the cross the story about how God gets so angry every time we sin? And if you've got a lot of humans doing a lot of sinning, then God over the years gets really, really angry. And one day, God, this cosmic father up in heaven, is so angry with humanity that he sends his son to the earth so that he can unleash his anger on Jesus. And some would even call this perverted story of the cross an example of divine child abuse. That God on the cross abuses his son so as to not kill humanity. N.T. Wright has said that when many non-Christians look at the cross, they don't see John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. They actually see the opposite of that, that God so hated the world that he killed his only son. Is the cross about God's anger? Or is the cross about his love? I want to deconstruct real quick this narrative that the cross is about God unleashing his anger as the primary story. First of all, it misunderstands the object of God's wrath. That on the cross, yes, Jesus Christ drinks the cup of wrath that our sins filled up. But what God tells us through the Apostle Paul in Romans is that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness 
of people. God does not hate people. He hates the wickedness and the godlessness that have enslaved us and made us less than the people that he created us to be. But secondly, to call the cross an example of divine child abuse and to believe that the story of cross is that God kills his son so as to not kill humanity, it grossly misunderstands the willingness of Jesus and the identity of Jesus. For Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 10, after saying, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep, Jesus tells us the reason that my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. Jesus was not an unwilling victim. Jesus willingly gave his life to save you and me. And then he tells us later, in case there was any confusion, I and the Father are one. There cannot possibly be a case of divine child abuse on the cross because Jesus is in fact God incarnate. That when God set up this world to be a just world, he knew that the cost of justice was his own pain. That the cost of justice was his own life. These are not arbitrary rules. God willingly gives himself in order to redeem humanity. And so the story of the cross is not the story of God's anger. It is that God does everything necessary to remove everything that separated you from God. I told you that I, I lived a couple years in uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina as a missionary. And I, I loved my time in Argentina. Uh, came to love living there. It was difficult at the start because it's difficult to move to a new place, even within your own state or your own country, but to move to another country has added difficulties to it. And there was one season of my life in Argentina where I was uh, particularly stressed. Uh, there were some things going on at our church that were weighing on me. Uh, I was very lonely. I didn't speak English very often. Um, I mostly spoke Spanish, and so I just didn't have a lot of friends that spoke English with me. And I was missing my family, missing loved ones. And so there was a season where I was simply lonely. And on one of those days, I get a call from my father. And my father, who I know is going to watch this, so I'm not saying anything he wouldn't want me to say. But my father called me. And when I saw his name come up on my phone, I was tempted not to answer. Some of you may know how this works, that if you're not doing well and someone that loves you calls you, you may be tempted not to answer, not because you don't want to talk to them, but because you don't want them to know that everything's not okay. Right? So I almost didn't answer my phone, but I, I thought, I need to hear my father's voice. So I answered my phone, and as soon as I heard my dad's voice, my voice began to waver. It was obvious that I wasn't doing well. So my dad asked me, what's, what's going on? And I told him what was going on, that I was feeling lonely, that I was stressed, that uh, I was confused, it was disorienting. And my dad told me something. I don't remember exactly the terms of the conversation, but he told me something that I'll never forget. He said something to the effect of, Son, I will get on a plane tomorrow if that's what's necessary for you to be okay. Son, I will do whatever it takes to cross the gap that separates me from you. And if you're a parent, if you're a son, if you love someone dearly, you know that when you love someone, you would be willing to do anything to cross the gap that separates you from him. The story of the cross is not the story of a father that is so angry with humanity that he kills his son to not kill us. The story of the cross is the, is the story of a father who is so in love with us that he would cross the sea to find his daughter. 
that he would climb the mountain to rescue his son. That God would do everything necessary to get you back. That's what happens on the cross. And so finally, not only have we had our intimacy with God restored, our peace with God restored, and God has brought back our human vocation, but he has also restored the perfect utopia that we lost. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that you and I are groaning because we know we were not created for a perfect world. We groan and all of creation with us for the redemption of our bodies. Not that God would allow us to escape from this world, but so that God would restore the world that we lost. That you and I long for a better place. And if if there's a reason why we're not satisfied by the things of this world, it's because we were not created to live in a broken world. We were created to live in God's perfect utopia. I heard a story just this past week about Shin Dong Hyuk. Shin is a North Korean man who lived uh, 23 years in a concentration camp in North Korea. Evidently, there are still concentration camps in North Korea for them to send political dissidents and others who, um, for whatever reason, they feel the need to punish in that way. And Shin was one of these people who spent 23 years in these camps. But what's, what's unique about Shin is that he was actually born inside the concentration camp. Shin knew nothing of the world outside of the camp. Not only that, he didn't know anything of the world outside of North Korea. And so for Shin, this brutal place where they had meager food rations, um, they were brainwashed by the guards, uh, the threat of torture and death was always on the horizon. He lived in this world and he believed this world to be his home. Until one day when Shin's world would be turned upside down. Because somebody came from outside the camp. The man's name was Park. Park came into the camp and Shin was assigned to monitor Park because Shin had been bred by the guards as a snitch. He was supposed to go around the camp and listen to people's escape plans and then snitch on them so that they would suffer the consequences of their actions. But as, uh, as Shin began to spend more time with Park, he went from being a snitch to being a desiring escapee. You see, Park began to tell Shin stories of things that he had never heard before. Park, who had not only lived outside of the concentration camp, but Park had lived outside of North Korea. He had been to China and Germany, maybe other places. And so Park began to tell Shin amazing things, like the world is round and not flat. There are countries other than North Korea. And what most stood out to Shin is that Park told him there is such a thing as grilled meat. Shin, who had grown up eating this uh, soupy cabbage with some salt, uh, didn't know that there was such a thing as grilled meat and fried chicken. And it's the grilled meat that really stood out to Shin. Shin began to dream about grilled meat. He began to think about it. It filled his thoughts until one day he thought about grilled meat and what it represented, this world that he didn't know outside the camp. He thought about it so much that he decided it was time to escape. So he goes to Park and he says, will you help me escape from Camp 14? And Park agrees. They are one day um, doing a watch up in the snowy mountains of North Korea within the confines of their camp. And when 
uh, Shin and Park realized that the guards had left, they took their chance and they headed towards the fence. Surrounding the entire camp was a, an electric fence and they knew that was waiting for them. And so as they approached the fence, Shin, who was supposed to be the one with insider knowledge, Shin slipped in the snow and fell face down on the ground. So Park arrived at the fence before Shen did, and Park did not hesitate. He knew the plan, and he tried to maneuver his way through the fence. But at one point, he touched the electric fence. It electrocuted him instantly, and Park died on the fence, and his body lay over the wires. Well, Shen, when he lifted himself up and arrived at the fence, discovered that Park had died, and his body lay over the wires of the fence. But Shen did not hesitate. He knew the plan. He knew he could not stop. And using Park's body to brace him from the wires, he crawled through the fence to freedom. Within 30 days, he made it to China. And within two years, he arrived in Southern California where he tried for the first time a hamburger, something maybe somewhat akin to the grilled meat that he had always longed for. Like Shen, you and I were not created for a world of brokenness and slavery. Like Shen, you and I were not created for a world of apathy. Like Shen, you and I were not created to be slaves to our addictions. Like Shen, you and I were not created to live with guilt and with shame and with anxiety and fear. Like Shen, you and I were created for another world. And the reason why you and I have such a, a hard time filling our hearts with things from this world is, is because we were not created for a broken world. We were created for a world beyond the fence. And what happens to us is the same thing that happens to Shen, is that someone comes from outside the camp. Someone comes from outside of our reality and they begin to tell us stories about a life that we could only imagine. Jesus comes inside of our camp and he tells us that there is another way to live, that there is another world, that there are things that you have never tasted. And Jesus is the one who leads us to the fence and lays his body over the wire so that you and I can crawl to freedom. It is on the cross that Jesus Christ opens up a door to another world, to the kingdom of heaven, to God's utopia that is now open for all of us. And if we would simply follow Jesus by his body, we can be saved. Shin's story does not end in Southern California because after Shim was released from his slavery, from this camp, he became an advocate for all those who were living in the camps. There are still people living in these concentration camps. And so Shin now travels the world telling his story so that the people who are still in the camps will one day experience the same freedom and maybe one day even taste that grilled meat that they don't even know exists. You and I have the exact same job description that as we learn to enjoy the freedom that Christ has won for us, we're also invited to tell others that there is a life outside of the camp of slavery that, that they're living in. You and I are given this simple task, and it's the homework that I want to give you this week. We're told to enjoy the life that Christ has restored to us. It's pretty simple homework, right? Enjoy the life that Christ has restored. And once you have lear learned to enjoy that life, then we look around us and invite others in the world to join.